0: We are in chapter 7 of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. It's 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew. We're working through that together. So page 812 in your pew Bibles, if you don't have your own, turn to Matthew 7. While you're turning there, it occurred to me this week, I don't remember the last time I saw, do you guys remember, if you're old enough, do you remember the coexist bumper stickers? You remember those? You know, they like to spell coexist with the different symbols of different world religions. It occurred to me this week, I don't think I've seen one of those in a very long time. Uh, There was a... a, um, sort of the second generation of that. I don't know the generation, but anyway, where if it was tolerance, same kind of theme, right? All the different uh, religious symbols, all on the bumper sticker that says tolerance. Um, yeah, if I asked you 50 years ago for the most well-known Bible verse, I think that the best candidate might be probably John three sixteen. right? This is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son, who believes in him and not perish, but have eternal life. But I think if, you asked me, if I asked you 10 years ago, it's the most popular Bible verse. I bet Matthew 7-1 would have replaced it. Don't judge me. Echoed in the coexist and tolerance, right? Like everybody just live your own lives and get along. Where did those bumper stickers go? They went the way of every kind of attempt to live tolerant, coexisting lives without mercy. Coexistence, tolerance without mercy leads to what we see today which is the the children of the coexist generation have become incredibly, I mean, we've invented, or not invented, but we have perfected maybe cancel culture. Now I'm not going to not tolerate you, but I'm going to make sure your viewpoint isn't even talked about on my college campus. I'm going to make sure that we are labeled a hater and a bigot just for simply disagreeing with me. How do we get from there to here? And I think it's by not listening to Jesus. I mean, that's not surprising as a Christian pastor to say, is it? But Jesus in uh, Matthew Matthew 7, uh, 1 through 5, takes up the topic of judgment. Condemnation and how we should treat each other. Uh, so we'll read that together here. I hope you've got it in your Bibles. As, uh, Jesus continues. He's, he's moving towards the close of this Sermon on the Mount. So we'll read these five verses together. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't judge me, man. Live and let live. <clears throat> And yet Jesus will go beyond just that first summary command to give us wisdom on how to live in a world with disagreements and sin and brokenness, where there is a God who is a judge and who will judge us. So I think when we see uh, these verses together as we meditate together today, what Jesus is trying to say to us is that being merciless makes things worse. Being merciless makes things worse. Or if you want to make it a positive statement, the same, same idea positively, the merciful, if you're a merciful person, the merciful help us make progress. I think it was my attempt to summarize those five verses. The negative kind of way to say it is being merciless makes things worse, or positively the merciful help us make real progress. As we consider this, this injunction Jesus has given us, after he's told us how to pursue the greater righteousness that goes all the way down to our souls, right? From our hearts out so that we are whole and, uh, and mature, and then walked us through ways that we can go wrong by practicing our religious piety to be seen by others instead of by being seen by the Lord. He, he now gives us this caution to avoid this judgmentalism. And so that's the first thing we'll do is look at verses one and two. Don't judge, Jesus' command. What does he mean by that? <clears throat> then we'll take up the questions he asks in three and four. Why do we judge? And in verse five then, how do we judge well? How do we live in a world where there, there really are specks in people's eyes and our own? It need removing. So don't judge. Why judge? Judge well. Verses one and two. Verses three and four. Verse five. Um, consider merciful. Help us make progress. Merciless. Being merciless makes things worse. So uh, first verse. First and second verse. First point. Don't judge. Don't judge. Judge not. That you be not judged. What is Jesus commanding us to avoid? I got I to gotta do some work. I feel like I must do some work to say what he's not saying first because there's been lots of ways to misinterpret this. Uh, one of them that I didn't know about until I read about it this week, but it's bad enough that if you ever hear it, I just want you to know. Uh, one way of reading this is to say that we should get rid of all law courts. Like, we should just not have criminal prosecution. No human judge is competent to sit on a law court and so they just be done with all of them. Um, and I'm just going to tell you, Jesus is not advocating for anarchy. That's, that's what that position is, right? <clears throat> Jesus is not advocating that. It's a misreading of what Jesus says. Among other things, we know from Romans 13 that God has authorized governments with the power of the sword to decide and to um, establish what's right and oppose what's wrong. Now, they might do that really badly, and they might need reform, like ours does in many ways. Every human government will need reform because we are sinners. Every human judge will have his own sin and her own sin, okay? But that doesn't mean the authorization is gone completely. <clears throat> he's not advocating his disciples abandon those authorities to unbelievers. And that'd be worse. <laughs> what if we all pulled out and it was only non-Christians who sat on official judicial places? That, that wouldn't go well. So that's not what he's doing. <clears throat> the more modern idea that I think is more popular among our, 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 our age is that idea of tolerance and coexisting. He's Like he's saying, don't judge me, right? Maybe we can summarize Jesus' entire ethic as you do your thing, I'll do mine. Everyone mind their own business, and we'll all get along. But I, if you've read, I mean, if you just take verse 1, you might make that case. But if you've read, like, two or three verses on either side of Matthew 7, or two or three chapters, or really any part of the Bible at any great length, you'll just know that can't be what Jesus means. He, he can't be saying that. Just to keep ourselves to the Sermon on the Mount. What, you know, if we'd been reading or hearing this on that, that hillside on the day that Jesus was giving it, what we would have already had in our ears, Right? In Matthew 5, 19 and 20, Jesus said, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, now, that is Jesus making a judgment. God's commands must be followed. Teaching people to break God's commands will get you God's judgment. And he's looking at his disciples on that hillside and saying, you can look at the scribes and the Pharisees and you've got to be more righteous than them. Or Matthew 5.22, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says, you fool, we go to the, liable to the hell of fire. I mean, that's, that's Jesus saying, here's, here's how you have to live. Uh, everyone in uh, 5.30, if you don't cut out sexual sin from your life, if you're not going after your sexual sin, your whole body will go into hell. 5.37, if you don't just say what you mean, let your yes be yes and your no be no, that is evil. That's a judgment. <laughs> To say something is good and something is evil is a judgment. And then we saw, you know, six chapters, chapter 6, 1 through 18, all these ways not to be like the hypocrites. Not to practice your piety, to be seen by people, to gain their approval, but to really draw near to God. All of that involves judgment. You've got to say, this is right, this is wrong. To take the language of the Old Testament, you've got to say, this is clean, this is unclean. This is sinful, this is holy. Even the, I mean, the, the case study, right, that's really popular, very famous, right, of Jesus' mercy is the woman caught in adultery, and John, it's recorded for us in John 8. And even in that case, at the end of it all, right, Jesus says, whoever has without sin cast the first stone and they all walk away, and Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you. But then what does he say? Go and stop sinning. He doesn't say, you just keep doing your thing and I'll do mine and we'll all get along. He says, what? adultery is sin. So I'm not going to stone you now. Most of you, because of all things, Jesus is a lawkeeper, and without witnesses, you can't do that. And so it was an injustice from the beginning. But then he looks at her and says, stop sinning. You need to repent. So even in the case study of mercy, which is where we're going, and, I mean, it's where Jesus is going here in, in John, I keep saying it, Matthew 7. Uh, even in the case, you know, like, even there, we see judgment happening. You've got to say right wrong. Good, evil, sinful, holy. Okay, so that's Jesus, but maybe he can do that because he's Jesus. But, but us? What about us? We certainly shouldn't do that, right? No. Even just to stick with Matthew, Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, Jesus will send his disciples out into the villages around to go preach the gospel of the good news of Jesus. And he tells them that if, if a house receives them or if a village receives them, great, stay there, teach the gospel. But if they reject him, if they say, we don't want to hear you, get out. And as they leave the town, or they leave the house, they're supposed to shake the dust off their feet. There's a sign against them. Like, we don't want anything to do with your rejection of Jesus. That's a sign of judgment. Or Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, he, he tells us how to handle sin among the community, among, among Christians. If someone called a brother sins against you, you're supposed to go show him his fault. And if he doesn't listen to you, then you go bring a couple of witnesses to con- confirm that it's not just your perspective, but multiple people actually think this brother's committing a sin, and if they won't even listen to them, you tell to the whole church. And if the whole church agrees that what this guy is doing is a sin and he refuses to repent... You're supposed to cast him out. Treat him like, a. in Jesus' language in Matthew 18, Gentile and a tax collector, which on this side of the resurrection means uh, excommunicate, not a Christian, not a brother, not a sister. We're, we're supposed to exercise that kind of judgment. Jesus explicitly authorizes it. It's as all just in Matthew. Every book of the New Testament has some element of judgment in it. I mean, the apostles, Peter, John, Paul, James, Jude, Every one of them, in part, their letters are writing to say what you're doing or believing or loving something in your church is wrong and needs to change. So if Jesus meant live and let live, he didn't live it very well, he didn't tell his disciples to do it very well, the apostles certainly didn't do it. That can't be what he means. I'm laboring this because I think we've really got to believe that that's the case. Because our culture and Satan would love us to be silent and mean. Our culture and Satan would love us to keep our mouths shut and buy this lie so that we just don't tell people that the way they're living, the things they're thinking, we'll send them to hell. You're supposed to make judgment calls. You're supposed to know right from wrong, good from evil, beautiful from twisted, and we're supposed to live that way and tell others that good news. Okay, so if he's not saying that, <laughs> what is he saying? What does he say when he says, judge not lest you be judged? And the two-word summary I've got is proud condemnation. Christians must not engage in proud condemnation. So condemnation is a kind of judgment. Judgment cuts people off. writes people off. You're not worthy of my time. I'm not going to spend any effort with you. Anything you say and think and do is cancel culture. And if our culture is going with cancel culture, listen, I mean, we've got plenty of that in our history as believers. It's evident on social media, but societies and people and communities have been doing this, well, probably since the fall. Cutting people out, writing people off. And I say proud condemnation because this kind of judgment, this kind of condemnation does so by standards we've created for ourselves. You can tell, you can see that Jesus is, what, what helps us understand what Jesus is saying is the way he talks about measures and judgments. Don't judge lest you be judged, verse two, because with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. and With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. So when you think about what's right and wrong, good and bad, holy and sinful, what measure do you use? What standard do you apply? And the problem we've got is that we're just always making up our own. We've got our family customs. We've got our church traditions. We've got our community standards. And, you know, some of them can be good in their place. But we make our own standards and then we apply them to others as if everyone must conform to what we expect of ourselves or we think it has to happen in our family. Uh, we make our standards and then we enforce it on others and we proudly condemn them when they don't do what we want them to do. They're they're being God. They're not They're not trying to represent God. The, the thing Jesus is warning us against is... Instead of representing God in his ways, we start trying to be God and make up our ways. So we, just to start with the illustrations in Matthew, we can see in Matthew, regularly the scribes and the Pharisees are the people who do this. They cut people out because they don't meet their self-made standards. So Matthew 9-11, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's, got a known, he's at a dinner party with known sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes come up and say, why is your teacher doing that? He shouldn't even be eating with them course, if you know your Old Testament, you know they, they've got like two or three steps. You've got two or three steps back from that. You've got some, some case, but the rule they have is not the rule that, that God gave. We're supposed to encourage and engage with people. Um, you have to be clean to enter the temple. You don't have to be clean just to eat a meal together. They had taken the rule and expanded it way beyond what it was meant to be, and so they have a self-made standard, and then they cut everybody else off from so, tax collectors and sinners, we shouldn't even have them over for dinner. We, sh- we shouldn't have any high hospitality, right? They're making their own standards and they're cutting people out. Or, Matthew 12, uh, Jesus is walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. The Ten Commandments prohibit work on the Sabbath. So, what are his disciples doing? They're hungry, so they, they pluck a go- stalk of grain, they rub it to get the sunflower, basically, the sunflower seed out, and they're eating the sunflower seeds as they walk. And the, and the Pharisees are like, they're doing work on the Sabbath, they're harvesting. And, you know Anybody who knows the examples from the rest of the Old Testament about what harvesting means, it doesn't mean rubbing uh, individual grains of hand, uh, of, uh, individual grains between your hands to eat as you walk. But they've got their standard. They've elevated it to their own law and now they're going to cut people out. Right? It's proud condemnation. And Jesus' basic warning is, like in verse 2 is that this kind of overcritical, harsh, merciless condemnation will come back on you. That's the first thing that we want you to think about is it will just come back on you. By the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. The judgment that you cast judgment uh, will come right back on you. So we, we see this all the time in the world around us. Um, parents who are harsh and overbearing have kids who grow up resenting them. So if a parent is over strict and mean at home, eventually the kids will see that parent's failures. And if they've been well-trained, they are just as harsh back. Or a woman who masters gossip as a way to out those she deems unworthy will eventually find herself the subject of somebody else's gossip when something unworthy in her gets discovered. Or an employee who mercilessly derides his manager's decisions, right? You know that guy, that girl, just is never happy with anything that comes down. We'll find that that culture that he's created around himself will eventually come back to bite him when everybody second guesses his decisions. So you can see that just from an earthly wisdom level right? If you're overbearing, if you're harsh, if you're merciless, you should expect that people will treat you that way. But Jesus means something bigger and greater and more eternal than that, finally. it will come back to you on the day he comes back to judge the living and the dead. I don't know if you've ever considered, when Christ comes back, you probably have considered this, when Christ comes back, right, he has his law, He is God and the judge and the king. And he is the final decider of right and wrong, good and bad, holy and sinful. And he will judge by the standard that his father has given him. He will pronounce judgment according to the judgment of the father. Which is why he's telling us our righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not just enough to do good on the outside. We have to be holy inside and out. Set that aside for just a minute. And just imagine that he just judged you by your own standards. just imagine that everything you condemned somebody else for spoke badly about them behind their back for, grumbled about them as you were driving home from that meeting or driving away from that confrontation. Everything you said about somebody else, what if he just replayed all that to you? You know, we would, we'd be condemned by our own standards. He won't even have, I mean, he will. His standards are just and right he wouldn't even have to. He could just say, let me me play the tape back (laughs) and let us look at your life. Beloved, if you don't know what it means to be cleansed from your sin, apart from whether you think Jesus is a good and holy judge, which he is, apart from that, just, just examine yourself by your own life and your own standards. And I would encourage you to ask God to help you as we're about to see, to see those things. Because we don't see them very easily. So ask God to show you, and that's going to be painful. <laughs> the good news in that pain is that the standard that we have received from God is holy and good, and Jesus died because we can't meet it. I mean, He's the one who lived up to the standard the Father set, who lived a sinless, perfect life. And then He died take our judgment for us. That's part of what the supper means, reminds us of. So we're the people who expect mercy because we know we can't get there without it. So if you're here and that's not you, if you don't know that mercy, friend, look to Christ and live. Look to Christ and be forgiven. Confess those sins. Put your trust in him. And then as we're about to see, ask him to even show you the things you're not aware of because that's what we desperately need. Now, what Jesus is trying to, the, the way to get out of this proud condemnation isn't to, to throw off all restraint and say, well, fine, everybody do what they want, and I'm just going to ignore it. That does not do good for the world. No, the way to get out of this is to see our sins first. And so Jesus asks in, in our, point, our point two, verses three and four, he, why do we judge? Why do we do that? He begins to ask these questions so that we'll begin to examine ourselves. So he gives this statement, he calls us away from this proud condemnation as we make our own standards and cut people out and do it without mercy. And then he asks us, why do you do that? Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye uh, but not notice the log in your own? That's his first question. Why, why don't you see your own sins? He kind of just assumes as a statement of fact that that's true. <laughs> that you, you, You'll be able to see in the image here is, right, something from the carpentry world. Uh, his Father Joseph knew. we were up in the shop, right? How can you tell a guy's got sawdust in his eye and there's a floor joist in yours? You're real good, aren't you? That's seeing the sawdust in somebody else's eye. And it's like you can't even notice. You got the whole rafter, like one of these things. That's like the image of the beam in Greek. Like one of these size beams above our heads here. How do you not see that? Why is that? And then the word for notice. He says, you know, why do you, how can you see the speck in your brother's eye but not notice the log in your own? It's a, it's a pretty strong word in Greek. It really means pay attention to you. How is it you you're not, like, really focusing on that. How is it you're not really carefully examining your own log? Why, why do you do that? I, just for the sake of the illustration, I think it's even possible because what our hearts are going to do is begin to just self-justify. We get into these conflicts and we'll say, well, well, I don't, you know, my sin doesn't greatly outweigh her sin or his sin, right? So um, it's, I'm not in that position where I have a log and they've got a speck. We've both got specks, all right? I think it's very possible that Jesus, in using this illustration, isn't literally meaning the size of these two things, but the experience. Because have you had sawdust in your eye? It feels like there's something huge in there. So it could well be that Jesus very deliberately knows that, like, both of you actually have the same problem. But in your life, your eye will feel, I mean, in your body, your eye your eye will feel it. And, I, I mean, you just can't stop blinking. Your tears are watering, you know? Why is it that in that situation you're real good at picking out somebody else's? If you were really concerned about honoring God and being a righteous people, shouldn't even the smallest hint of your own sin be a real irritant to you? Like like sawdust in your eye, you wouldn't want to do anything until you got rid of it. So the second question leads on from that, then why do you try to help others when you can't see? How do you say to your brother, verse four, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's the log in your own. I mean, the very clear image, you can't see. How do you think you're going to be of any good? I mean, you, you, you're so, I've already got you there, right? You remember the last time you had something in your eye and your eye was watering and you're, it's red and you can't go two seconds without blinking and, and, you're, and you're going to like take a Q-tip and look at your wife or your kids or your friend and say, here, let me go at yours. While you're, I mean, you're like, you, can't, you can't, what are you going to do? What you're going to do is you're going to jab him in the eye. You're going to make it worse. Even if your desire to help them is sincere. You can't see clearly. So you're going to make it worse. Merciless people make things worse. That's how we are. When we try to see problems in others, we aren't aware of our own sin and we try to help uh, even when we're sincere. And that's how judgment and condemnation just continually cycles. Just continually cycles in our lives, in our homes, in our nations. We see their sins. And we go at those sins without the humility of knowing our own. And so because we haven't learned how to really get the sin out of our lives, we don't do the right thing even if we're really trying to help other people sincerely get the sin out of their own. I mean it seems so clear in the Israel-Hamas conflict right now. I mean Hamas did something atrocious and awful without excuse. Right? Slaughtering innocent people and worse. Israel as a nation has a right to defend itself. But you get on the socials and you got people in Israel saying the exact kind of things that people in Palestine say. I oh, just want them all gone. Like carpet bomb them into nothing. Can we just ex- exterminate the whole, the whole people? And that, that's Hamas' stated goal toward Israel. If you, by the way, if you're young enough and you, you, you see this from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that is not a call for peaceful resolution, right? That is a a statement of genocide against Jews. And we got the same, we see the same attitude on both sides. And while as a nation, they have a right to defend themselves, right? In their hearts, until mercy reigns, there will not be a resolution. It will just continue to cycle. Because Israel, you just can't engage in a war as justly as you try to engage in it without creating collateral damage. I don't think it's possible. It's the awful reality of human warfare. And so that's, that collateral damage is going to create bitterness and resentment back the other way. You just study the history of warfare and the history, na- history of nations and peoples. Uh, one side is victorious. Eventually, eventually, some group that they have cut out or oppressed will rise up, take power, and get them back. And warfare will just continue to expand. And so judgment just cycles. And you can take that down to your marriage, right? That same dynamic and global politics goes into your marriage. You tried to fix your husband's problems without figuring out how you contributed first or the other way around. Uh, have Have you gotten onto your kids for sins you committed when you were their age? And so you've done it in a really like harsh way because you want to... Listen, listen, I know... Because I, I know, because I know. <laughs> you, you're scared. You don't want them to go down your path. Right? But, but you haven't really worked out what's really drove that sin as a teenager. So you just changed the way you sin. But the heart issue's the same. And so you just go at it because you're scared and you want to spare them what you've done but you haven't really figured out how to get that, that underlying issue. So you don't really know what you're doing. Marriage, parenting in our churches, you misunderstand. So you're going to go correct the brother who you think made a mistake. So you jump in, but you, you, don't, you, don't, have the, you don't jump in with a mercy. Uh, we've, we've maybe seen those kind of things spin up. So why do we do that? I think Jesus is really asking us to answer the question. Why is it that we do that? Why, why do we see other people's sins and not our own? Why do we try to fix them before we fix ourselves? And he answers the question. He tells us we're hypocrites. That's what we are. This is the only, time, the only time he applies that, that label to the disciples. We saw all through chapter 6, he was talking about don't be like the hypocrites. There are people who try to pray to be seen. There are people who try to fast to be seen, right? Don't be like them. Instead, be like this. But this is the one time in all the Gospel of Matthew when he looks at the people sitting around him and says, you're hypocrites in this way. We ought to, we ought to, that ought to make us sit up. He just assumes Everyone sitting around him on that mountain, he can look at it and say, you hypocrite. Because that's just, that's what we are, Right? From Cain and Abel all the way down, we don't see ourselves. We justify ourselves, but we see very clearly other people. It's, it's our sinful fallen reality. We, we can't deny it. You can, you can deny it. You shouldn't deny it. Jesus is saying it's true. That's why we do it. We expect mercy from God and we fail to give mercy to others. Because we haven't worked that justification out into all of our lives. The instincts and the habits of our old life are still there and the instincts and the habits of the life to come have not yet been ingrained. Now, in God's grace, some of you have been more ingrained than others. So you've learned by God's aid, as we say in the covenant, right, to exercise more mercy. But but isn't that how you did it? You saw the mercy of Jesus for you. And the more you saw it, and the more you recognized it, the more you realized, "I, I gotta be merciful to my wife, my husband, my kids, my brothers, sisters, church members, the, the community at large, that there is a judgment we deserve, and Jesus took it for it, and we believe that. And we're hypocrites until we work that all the way out into everything so that we become fully poor in spirit. Right? That's, that's, again, just go back to the Beatitudes, the beginning of the sermon, chapter 5, every time. Um, we become fully poor in spirit. Those who mourn over our sins, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. But instead, we just, the default is we operate like we're the saviors instead of the ones who needed saving. And I, I think it's pretty obvious at this point why the teaching comes here in chapter 7. Because he's just told us, right? Here's all the ways that you shouldn't be like the hypocrites. You're supposed to be pursuing the righteousness that goes deeper than what what is on, on offer in his day. So a deeper righteousness that goes all the way to the heart, that draws near to God in sincerity and not as a pretense. And we're supposed to be pursuing that. And if if we ever, beloved, become untethered from the grace of God that helps us do all of that, if we ever are unmoored from the reality that any progress we make is His gift, well, it's not just that our righteousness won't exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, our self-righteousness will exceed the scribes and the Pharisees because we're pursuing something deeper, we will think more proudly about it. If we ever lose sight, and, and all the ways we lose sight, of the way that we are just need, desperately needing mercy. So as we celebrate the supper here in a couple minutes, one thing that we should be doing every time we celebrate the supper is we acknowledge, I and mean, that's the symbolism of the supper is we need something outside of us to come inside of us and change us. We need Jesus not to be out there giving us directions that we can live up to. He does do that. But in order to do that, he also comes into us by the work of his spirit to give us life and to nourish us like food nourishes our bodies. To recommit and become aware. Maybe right now, just ask the Lord to help you see that. We are desperately in need of mercy. We need to be the people who've been given mercy in every area of our life and know it so that we will be merciful people because when we're merciful people, will actually help make progress. We can actually do the kind of good, bad, right, wrong, holy, sinful. Well. That's that's verse 5. So if we have answer the question and we come face to face with the reality that Jesus is pressing on us, man, we are hypocrites. We desperately need mercy. Even in this, I need God's mercy. Then he says, he gives us directions. Hypocrite. This is what you should do first. You should take the log out of your own eye. Now that's not a suggestion. That's the command of the king. You've got sin in your life. You need to get it out. It's not a good idea for how you can be a good member of society. It is a good idea for how you can be a good member of society, but it's not just that. It's the command of your king. Take that log out of your eye. As as diligently as you would work, with blinking and eye drops and tricks that I learned in scouts about eyelash, all kinds of things, right? You want that thing out of your eye. Pursue sin, the smallest irritant. John Owen would say it in his book on killing sin, like at the first instance of sinful moves of your heart, rise up mightily against it. Like don't rise up to the level that your sin is exerting its influence. You see a little bit and you smash it, like you smash a mosquito quickly right then. Don't take little sins lightly because they don't stay little. Get rid of your anger, your condemnation, your envious lusts, your self-serving double speak and love your enemies, even your enemies. Stop using religious practices to have that reputation for piety and actually use them to draw near to God in prayer and praise and confession and service. I mean, everything he said up to this point. Be generous on earth because you're confident in your Father's generous, good, eternal care for you. See, if you're that kind of person, then you know how, how will you react when you meet a guy who wants you to treat him like he's a girl. Or a woman who thinks she has to have the right to kill her children in order to live a fulfilled life. Those, those are the people that are, are permanent, right? And, and if you just see evil, that's wrong, and it is. But you don't recognize, apart from the mercy of God, you could be there too you'll react wrong. You might say all the right things and still be wrong. You'll also, what about a Christian? He won't stop sleeping with his girlfriend or her boyfriend. What what about a Christian who hasn't gathered with a church in a decade or or doesn't think the Bible is reliable? How will you react to them? I mean, those things are all wrong. (laughs) They, They all violate the commandments of Jesus. And if you don't see in your heart, like, I've been shown mercy, and if apart from that mercy, I could easily be there, so the, the way that you would answer that is with clarity and patience. And those are the two sort of virtues I'm going to think Jesus, this process creates in us. this clarity and patience. You, you know the, the measure. I mean, Jesus tells us there's a measure coming. and So he says, here, you'll be judged by the measure you use. And, and then in Matthew 25, he tells us what, what you actually be judged by is God's measure. I mean, he, he's got a measure. He has a standard. He's a holy God. He's good and just. And so he doesn't just wink at sin. He has to judge it. It's not because he's mean. He's good so you know that you'll know that God has a measure and it's the good right just measure the good right just standard and you'll know that you fall short and so you needed mercy because Jesus' body was broken and blood was shed for you and so uh, when you meet with a non-Christian somehow you'll be clear and patient you'll, you'll have an attitude you might say these very words right like Jesus will crush that sin if you're still clinging to it, it'll crush you too. But if you will turn, find mercy like I found it. That's why Jesus told his disciples to shake the dust off their feet. What's coming in Matthew 10. Because if you reject the Son of God, if you reject the offer of mercy and grace in Jesus, there is no hope. I mean, there's only, the only thing you can expect is condemnation from the just judge. And so as Jesus' ambassadors, literally shaking the dust off your feet won't tell anybody anything. That would not communicate these days. But something similarly clear, like there is no hope apart from the mercy of Jesus. And if you don't embrace him, you can expect nothing but condemnation. And wouldn't we spare everyone we know that (laughs) if they would just turn and trust? So you'll be clear and you'll be patient because they might not accept right away. Does that mean you're like, I'm done with you? No. As you have opportunity, as there's a relationship, as the Lord opens the doors and gives you providence, you just continue to say, I love you. And Jesus will crush all sin, including that one. And I don't want him to crush you with it. Uh, that's Matthew 10, right? The, the, way he authorizes that kind of sign of judgment. What about Matthew 18, where Jesus says, excommunicate unrepentant sinners from the church? What about that? Well, so one thing to say is, right, Matthew 18 comes after Matthew 7. So by the time we get to where we're learning how to do this kind of, we call it church discipline, right, Uh, as a congregation, we've already learned and at least been exposed to the idea that we should be not proud condemners, but showing clarity and patience. So we're those kinds of people... So that when Jesus says, when your brother sins against you, go show him his fault. He's just applying what he says here in verse 7. I mean, sorry, chapter 7, verse 5. When you get the speck out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, Jesus, I mean, mean, right there, you can just put an end to the idea that Jesus means live and let live. What he wants us to do is be helping each other grow in holiness. He wants us to be helping each other kill our sin. He wants us to help each other be doing spiritual good. He wants us to be the kinds of people who can look at a brother or a sister and say, let me help you get that out. We've just got to get it in the right order, in the right perspective, in the right proportions so that we are the people who understand how mercy changes us to be like Jesus, how we've been transforming. What is it that's made your sin weaker in your life? That's I mean, worth meditating on. How have you gotten specks out of your eye? When you have seen sinful attitudes or sinful actions, and you've seen those weakened and eliminated, and you've worked on them, and you've seen real progress, if you've been a Christian long enough, right? Ask yourself, well, how did that happen? How has my heart been made more happy in Jesus so I actually have a distaste for my sin? When you know that answer to that question, then you're ready to go help other people, So they see the glory of Jesus like you have and their taste for sin is weakened. More than just willpower. You might have good instructions and good help for how to cut off particular things as we saw in uh, talking about that passage in chapter five. Um, Cutting off hands and gouging out eyes. There's immediate things to do but you won't be satisfied with that and you'll do it in the right attitude so you'll really be able to help. Merciful people do real good. So that's what he says in Matthew 18, right? Go tell a brother show him his sin, and if he repents, you forgive him. And you repent, you do that endlessly. Patience, that's the next story, the next parable Jesus tells about how you have to do that endlessly. Infinite patience for someone who's repenting. But if he refuses, he's like, no, nah, there's not a speck in my eye. You're like, man, I see it. <laughs> I, I see the eye watering, and it's red. I mean, I, I see that you're like sleeping with your girlfriend, and you're not repenting. I, I see that you're avoiding church for a decade. I mean, even a year. Why are you not gathering with the saints like Hebrews says? I mean, I see. We see what's going on. Um, two or three agree, and go try again. And they're the kinds of people who've been shown mercy, so they're merciful, clear and patient with the mercy of Jesus. And he still says, "No, nah, it's not. It's not a It's not a problem. It's not a problem." Well, then he tells the church, and listen. If the, if, the, if the whole church agrees, like, no, that really is a sin, because it's a church of people who've been uh, brought to know mercy and show mercy and to follow Jesus. If the church agrees it's a sin, and this guy says, "No, it's not a sin." Well, what Jesus says is he authorizes us to, to stop calling them Christians because we need to tell the truth. And you don't want the sin out of your out of your life. And if you don't want the sin out of your life, you can't really be a disciple of Jesus. You see, clarity and patience so that we're merciful people who actually help people make progress. So that you bear with all kinds of false starts and failings. Renewed repentance, grief and lament. And we help each other. Because that, again, is not just a suggestion. This is expectation in verse 5. You get the log out of your eye first, and then you will help your brother. You will help your sister. You will do good. Which is, again, why I recommended Mark Dever's book, Discipling. How to help intentionally do spiritual good for each other. It's a place to get started. What should be normal among us, I mean, that's kind of the, the awful cases, right? Nobody likes to think about that, but we've been authorized to do it. And if we're faithful ambassadors of the throne room of heaven, we'll be as clear and as patient as Jesus is clear and patient with us. But what should be normal among us is just a community that's devoted to helping each other grow in Christ. A community that's devoted to helping each other, ourselves, we're asking for help. I want the anger out of my life. I want the lust out of my life. I want the condemnation out of my life. I want the pride out of my life. I want the greed out of my life. You know, whatever it is, we're asking for that help. I want it. Brothers, sisters, help me. And as we have made progress, Paul says in Galatians, when you see someone in trouble, those who are spiritual, it's just another way to say the same thing. You've been shown mercy. You're a merciful person. Those who are spiritual should be pursuing each other. As we grow in Christ, we should be helping each other out. Let me tell you what worked for me. Let me show you the glory of Jesus. Let me remind you that he is infinitely patient with your failures as you're repenting, brother. Sister, let me remind you that he's drawing near to you. Let me show you. Let's go to this passage in scripture that really helped me to know that I don't need to cling to the stuff of the world. Kind of whatever the issue is that you work out over coffee or in women's Bible study or men's breakfast or, you know, uh, over text messages as you encourage each other. That should just be the normal thing that happens in churches that we're all all together together to help each other with disciple-making. It shouldn't be rare. It should just be what we do. I, I'd encourage you to pray for that among us. Uh, and then just encourage you that if you think you're not qualified for that, me, help somebody else make spiritual progress? Well, brother, sister, if that's you right now, let me just give you this very clear instruction. Get qualified. Like whatever the sin is you think is holding you back, go at it, confess it, ask for help. Learn to be the person who's gotten getting the log out of your eye. If you think it's a matter of like time and maturity, then stick with it. Meet up with older, mature Christians. Read your Bible together. Uh, Talk about things that come out of the sermon or the songs or the prayers from the Sunday service. I I mean, do the work to grow in Christ. Get qualified. Don't opt out and then like go passive. Pursue Jesus. Pursue your sanctification by God's grace. We have a holy responsibility to live a new and holy life. And and then I just say, don't underestimate what happened in you through the gospel. So, what what qualified doesn't mean is advanced theology degrees and hours of counseling certifications. No. God works through ordinary Christians just like you guys. And I know you guys. I, I love this church, and I love the members of this church. And I would just say that you guys are qualified. You're not all qualified in all the same ways, but all of you who have been walking with the Lord at all, and I've had conversations with me. I mean, I know you love Jesus. You read your Bibles. You want to grow in holiness. You're not perfect. You have plenty of sin in your life, and that in itself will help you. When somebody deals with greed, and you're also dealing with greed, you can say, yeah, I don't know how to make free from that one. But let's pray about that together and go find some help together. Because people who've been shown mercy, who are merciful, can make real, help others make real progress. He's given us the gospel. He's given us his spirit. He's given us each other. We grow together in the grace of God. Let's renew that. Celebrate his mercy to us by celebrating the supper together. Let's pray. Father, as we come, we take these elements, the bread and the cup, We just can't thank you deeply enough or fully enough for the mercy you've shown to us. We praise you, Lord God, that you are kind and gracious. And that you, by showing us the glory that you have revealed in Jesus, are making us into that image. And so we pray as we take these elements that you would use the gospel they point to, the the Savior who reigns over us to transform us into his image, to be his body. We pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.